0: i got to take you back to 1982, I believe. I'm a 29-year-old hospital administrator in Seattle, Washington, very wet behind the ears, relatively naive, and I'm commissioned to go on a business trip to Lost Wages, uh, Las Vegas, Nevada, And I was kind of psyched about it, because not that I ever really had any desire to go there, but hey, you know, someone's paying for it. Uh, They told me that my uh, room, and in fact our little meeting or whatever it was, was going to be in the Golden Nugget Casino Hotel, um, which back in the day it was, uh, today it's kind of a... The owners would love to hear me say it's kind of a dive, I guess. But uh, compared to the Bellagio and, you know, the Venetian and everything, it's kind of lower level. But anyway, so I was psyched about going. Plus, I had never, ever been in a casino. And so, I mean, I couldn't help but go into the casino because that's where my room is and everything else. So I was pretty psyched up about it. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a little gambling. That's right. <laughs> I heard that. Uh Oh, so, but no, 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 no. Oh, because I was a mature Christian. I knew my Bible. (laughs) And what did Solomon say? Pride goes before fall. But no, no, not with the kid. So my solution is I'm going to go in and I'm going to have $10. And when that $10 is gone, I'm done. So I go in, and I'm sitting there. It's very intimidating, at least to me. The place is all set up on a, uh, with, with, with all kinds of psychology involved. I don't know how many of you realize this about casinos. The first thing I learned, and this was after the fact, was that outside of when you come in the entrance, there is no more visuals to the outside world. And the lighting in the ceilings is, is of course, very ornate and elaborate, and it's very bright in there constantly, so that you're not aware of the passing of time, especially the sun going down. The whole point is to keep people in there and keep them donating to the casino. And so uh, I'd also learned later on, and I don't know if this is true, but supposedly casinos are known to even pipe in some oxygen to, you know, enrich the air a little better to keep you more awake because that relates to keeping you at the machines or the tables or whatever it is longer, all kinds of stuff going on with this. So I walk in, and I'm like, you know what, I am so intimidated by all this. um, I don't want to go up to anything where there's a human being that I have to face. So I'll go to the the safety of the slot machines, right? They're not called one arm bandits for anything or for nothing, I should say. And so I walk in, and you have to walk back quite a ways to get to the slot machines, if I remember right. And there were just rows and rows and rows. I don't know how many machines there were. I would guess there were at least 75 slot machines. And, of course, they had different denomination slot machines. There were quarter slots. There may have even been nickel slots in the day. Uh, But, of course, I was only interested, being the gambling casino tycoon that I was, I was only interested in the dollar slots with 10 bucks. <laughs> but the first thing I learned is you don't use actual silver dollars. Okay? And there's a reason for that. Because if you're putting actual money into the machine, you're putting actual money into the machine. And if you don't get it back, you're losing real money. So no, 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 no. You take your 10 bucks, in my case, you go up to this window And you tell them you want $10 for the slot machines, the dollar slots. And you get full-size silver dollar tokens that are the, the weight and they're thick and everything else. And even all of this now is psychological because when the machine pays out, it falls into a stainless steel bucket below. So if you can imagine a silver dollar dropping into a steel bucket times, let's say, 75 machines It's noisy, and the reason it's noisy is because every time there's that sound of a token hitting the bottom of the stainless steel, that means somebody just got a payout, okay? Now, with 75 machines, you're hearing things going on constantly, and on top of that, there's a red light on top of your machine so that when it pays out, you just get this little red flash, and so the mind game there is is that Piece of cake, man. Everybody's getting paid out here. All right. So, I take my first non-real money token, and I put it in, and I pull the one-arm lever there, and... Ding, 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 Nothing. But you see, I didn't lose a dollar. I lost a stupid steel token. You getting it? See, court, but. I mean, that wasn't playing well, all right, but that's what's behind all that. And so then I played another one, and ding, 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 ding. nothing. And I may have played one more, ding, 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 doink. and I got my artificial money back. So it's like, oh. So I kind of always thought slot machines, it was like, you get the grand prize or a big prize or something, or you don't get anything. Oh, that's not the way it works. You are suckered in little piece by piece. So now you have the choice of putting in one token, two tokens, or three tokens in the machine. Not three 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 tokens. So I thought, well, let's see what happens when I put three of these suckers in. So I put three in, pull the lever, and doink, doink, I get two back. I won! Woo! Woo! Really? I'll tell you what, any day of the week, You come up to me and give me three bucks and I'll give you two back with a smile. And you walk away going, I won. Now, I knew I was down, but I'm only down a token, right? So I thought, huh, okay, I got, you know, I don't know. I I haven't been doing the math here. Maybe five left, four left. I don't know. Put in three more. Ooh, I got like seven or eight bucks back. I knew I was hot, baby. So, this continues on now for 20, 25 minutes, right? And I'm sitting there and I've got my original 10 tokens and I've got now 10 tokens from the house. So, being the man, I take my 10 tokens, which I know is my $10, and I put them in my left pocket. That's in a safe. That's it. Now you've got 10 bucks of the house's money. Who cares, right? So I go through this thing, and boy, don't you know, you know, I'm hitting. What happens is you put in three, you might get back, usually get back, like one. You put in three, you might get nothing. You put in three, you get two back. You put in three, you get two back. You put in three, you get one back. Rarely do you ever pull that thing, at least in my case, do you pull it, and you get nothing back because that just kind of jars you. So instead, they just take it a little bit at a time because in your mind, you're like, yeah, this is still happening. I'm working it. We're working it. Well, all of a sudden, I'm up like 20 bucks in addition to the house's 10. So, man, uh, I got the machines figured out, baby. So, I'm going three at a time and pulling it, and things are coming out, or no things are coming out, or two are coming out, and this and that. And all of a sudden, after maybe 20 to 25 minutes, I'm out of the house's tokens. Well, that's okay, because I still have my original 10. So anyway, I start working the machine again because I was just up, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 bucks, something like that. So I go working through that, and all of a sudden, I'm out of all tokens, which means they now have $10 of my money. But I was just up 30. Are you kidding me? So you know what you do when you're the man. You get that wallet out, and you go back over to the cage. Yeah, give me 10 more. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm getting my money back. And boom, doesn't the kid pull it off? And I'm up again about 20, go through this routine. Well, anyway, what happens is now all of a sudden, boom, before you know it, I've lost my original 10. Now my second 10. Now it's personal. You got 20 bucks of the kid's money. It took me 10 minutes to get 30 up. No problem here. We'll go back to the window, except the Lord in his mercies was like grabbing on my collar going, you know, those little, the angel, the devil, the angel, right? Hey, they got your money, man. Go back and get some more. You can get it back. No problem. Oh, don't do it, Bill. Yeah, don't listen to that. It's there. Go get it, man. You got it. You the man. Come on. I'm telling you, don't do it. And again, now by this time in my life, I'd been in the Lord for, I don't know, probably 12 years or so, read through the Bible, then 10 times. And I remembered the words of Solomon, Wealth hastily gotten, soon perishes. I went, oh, (laughs) not sure you were talking about casinos, but the principle still certainly applies. And then I was also thinking about Paul's words to the Corinthians where he says, you know what, all things are lawful for me, meaning all things are permissible for me, but, he goes on to say, but not all things are beneficial, necessarily. He says, not all things are profitable, not all things build up or are, and do you any good. But the last one that grabbed me was, and I will not be brought under the mastery or the control of anything. And at that point I said, cut your losses, you're done, out of there. Last time I ever gambled. Well, in that form. (laughs) And I put money in the stock market. Oh, yeah, you had to go there, didn't you? Anyway, that's just for you sanctimonious Christians who rightly decry gambling like that. But then you're in and out of the market and you're doing shorts and you're selling options and all that. It's gambling. At the end of the day, it's gambling. Our mutual funds, anybody has got a mutual fund, right? I mean, what, eight days ago, I said, honey, we're retiring next week. Seven days later, honey, we're not retiring for another 10 years. (laughs) So anyway, $30, by the way, was a bargain basement lesson in life. Most of our lessons that we learn in life tend to be far more costly than that, both in money and in other terms. Well, we are in 1 Samuel, believe it or not, and now there is going to be a change of epochs coming, that is a change of, of seasons, if you will, that is not only going to cost God's people in 1 Samuel dearly, but it is going to cost from now through the end of of time as it does yet to this day, the change that is coming. Last week we began, and it said that Israel said to Samuel, Behold now, Samuel, you've grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. And so Samuel hears this, and he's jarred, and Samuel prays to the Lord. And the Lord tells Samuel, Let them have it their way. That's never a good thing. 1 Samuel chapter 8 beginning in verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king. Or this is what it's going to be like to have this king whom you want to reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to the servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. What is the recurring theme in just this handful of verses? The king that they just have to have, like all of the other nations, is going to be somebody who takes and not gives, but takes. Last week, we had to drop back 400 years to the book of Deuteronomy. And what is written in Deuteronomy 17 was written four centuries in advance of this particular time in Israel's history. We'll look at it again, Deuteronomy 17 beginning in verse 14. God says, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, your mind ought to be blown at this point. Four centuries before this. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses you. What does that mean? Well, what it means is he shall not multiply horses for himself. I talked about what that meant last week. He shall not multiply wives for himself, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, though, when he sits in the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write for himself a copy of his law, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The king that they want will take the king that they had, meaning Jehovah. And the king that they now want will continue to take but the king that god wants for them will give when the lord of the universe says something to you and to me when the one who created us gives us his counsel when the god who loves us so much that he left his heavenly abode to come and abide on this trash can planet earth, subjecting himself to all the nastiness in the, of, a, of a fallen world and everything else, does so just for us. When that God says, do this, but don't do this. Or when he says, don't do this, but do this, we better listen. It is because he loves us with a perfect love. And he knows already how all of our decisions will turn out for good or for evil affecting not just us and our lives, but for all the many other lives around that are touched in those different situations. Why is that so hard to believe to where we say, when we are tempted, and I'm not talking about just the big sins. When we are tempted in big ways or in small ways, yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, I know. I, I mean, I, I even have friends who've done what you know I'm about to do, or you know, I'm doing this and that. And I know how it worked out for them; it didn't work out all that real well. But I'm different. It's going to be different for me when I walk into that casino. In the history of the universe, it has turned out differently for uh, nobody. But it will turn out different for me. I think about Jeremiah's words about our hearts and how they are desperately corrupt and they are deceitful above all else. Even we can deceive ourselves and take great delight in it. And, of course, Satan is eminently crafty, which is why Peter warns us in 1 Peter 5, 8, to be of sober spirit and to be on the alert. Because why? Because we have an adversary who is Satan himself, who knows us, and he watches, and he waits, and he's prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Oh, pornography? Oh, yeah, I know. It's, no, I know. You know, I've never really been a person of lust. I, you know, I, I do it in moderation. <laughs> right. Everybody else has been trapped, but not me, because I'm different. Satan does not play fair. Satan understands us, I believe, better than we even understand ourselves. And Satan also understands the power of the quick payout. Meaning there's a positive experience at the outset of most temptations. And he knows well and he's happy to give up a little turf to suck us in. And so whatever that it is, that the, the it of the whatever that temptation is, you get that immediate payout. And so you go, see, I told you, man, this is working just like I knew it would because I am different. And Satan keeps feeding you more of what you were hoping for, sucking you deeper and deeper in, again, to whatever it is. And I am speaking here comprehensively. Again, don't think about just the big sins. It can be as paltry as just having a tendency to embellish the truth. You know, well, the story was 90% true, and yeah, you know, I threw some fluff in there here and there to make it a little more exciting or interesting. It might start out like that. But then it grows from just embellishing the truth to getting more and more elaborate in the embellishment to where all of a sudden you're not just embellishing, you're absolutely just fabricating the truth. You're making it up. And you've become so adept at it and you've become so skillful at it that it continues to grow to where you have become so used to it and good at it that even you have a hard time now knowing the difference when you're lying flat out and when you're not. So in love, God through his prophet Samuel is warning his people that what they are demanding of having their own king like the nations is not going to have a good ending. Oh, but what does God know? And so God compels Samuel to make his warning stronger verse 18 then samuel says to them speaking for god then if you go ahead and continue to do this thing you will cry out in that day because of your king when you have chosen for yourselves the king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the lord will not answer you in that day wait 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 what do you mean oh yeah this is old testament because I know the New Testament says God will never leave me nor forsake me. Whenever I ask and whenever I call upon God, I mean, he's there. That's why he exists. He's there for me. Well, this is no, the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see, if we think that we can willfully, that we can willfully walk headlong into that which is clearly against the very character and the very nature of God, kicking through the doors and the barriers and the boundaries and the tapes and the barbed wire that He's put up for our protection. If we think we can just smash through those things, And then we start reaping the consequences of that, and we start expecting and demanding that he change the consequences of my willful belligerence into blessing. And if that's the case, you're not only ripe for picking by the prosperity preachers, but you're walking off a cliff. And the cynic... Self justifying would say, Oh, there you go again, man. You're always in the Old Testament. You know, that God who's a big meanie. Judgment versus grace in the New Testament. Well, that's why I like Hebrews 10. Well, just Hebrews in general. Book of the New Testament that so skillfully and succinctly and artisanly weaves together the Old Testament with the New Testament with such a confluence that it is seamless. And what does the New Testament in the age of grace, post-resurrection, post-victory tell us? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. It says that if anyone willfully, if we willfully continue to walk against God's truth, having already known the truth, there no longer remains the forgiveness of sins, but the fearful prospect of judgment. New Testament. Now, on balance, if you have been the recipient or are the recipient of all those negative. Horrid consequences of being in willful belligerence to the Lord and you actually see it and you get it and you understand it and now in genuine repentance you call upon God not sorry that it's having a not the the desired effects that you want but you're truly sorry that you have so flagrantly gone against what he wants and you have insulted him and all of that repentance means sure God's going to hear you then absolutely. But if you march headlong into those gates God puts up and then go, oh, God, make it better. Make the hurt go away. He tells his people, I'm not going to answer you. Is there a happy ending here in First Samuel? Do God's people see the error of their way regarding this king that they must have? Despite the Lord's warning through Samuel, here's what we read beginning in verse 19. Nevertheless, meaning what? Meaning, even after hearing the God dictated warnings, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're delusional about this idea of what they have for this king. Now, after Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. (laughs) I love that. A little detail. Why? Why does he got to repeat it to God? Does God not know what's going on? No, Samuel was a prayer. And prayer was just conversation. And having no anxiety about anything, he says, boy, I got to take this to the Lord. And so he tells all the words to the Lord. And the Lord says to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. That's not good news. So you want to be like everybody else. This is obviously a very extreme situation, but it's not uncommon because of the recalcitrant human spirit Recalcitrant means to be belligerently uncooperative with authority or discipline. Sadly, it seems to be the defining trait that is all too common in every one of us to a matter of degrees. It was, in fact, the very downfall of man in the garden. There's all kinds of Asians... I didn't say Asians, and I didn't say Haitians. I said Asians, A-T-I-O-N-S, like defamation and inflammation and conflagration and altercation and a whole bunch of others. But the worst of them all to the Christ follower is enculturation. And what is enculturation? It is the gradual adoption of the morals of the values, of the traditions, of the habits, of the mores, of the lifestyles, of one's surroundings, making them your own. That's enculturation. Enculturation is becoming like those around you. And the intended warning and the command given to God's people for their well-being, every single time, that they were told to go into the land that God had prepared for them, was to do some housekeeping on their part as a mandatory condition for success. In Exodus 23:31, we read, I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you boy, this doesn't fly well today. What? Wait, no. Those people were there first. I know. But you see, it's God's planet. It's his land. He sees them as squatters. And so he says, here's the land I've given you. I'll take care of things. I'll prep it. All this. I'll give you success. But you've got to go in, and you have to make sure you completely get rid of them all. Get them out of the way. Now, I can't really read God like that. Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore today that it is the Lord your God who is crossing over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them, who them, the inhabitants of the land, and he, who God, will subdue them before you so that you may drive them out and destroy them quickly just as the Lord has spoken to you. They didn't always listen, did they? Joshua 17:13. Well, it came about that when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites, they were the squatters in the land that God had prepared, they put them to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. What's the sequel? Judges 2, three. Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they will become as thorns in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. God says, your ways are not my ways. It's my universe, it's my planet. I know how you're going to get success, and you're going to get success by taking only the children of God into that land and all the people who are worshiping idols and pagan gods and everything else, all that, get rid of them. Because if you don't, they're going to come and they're going to bite you sooner or later. So play with me a little bit. God appears to you one day and he says, I am giving you deed to a an apartment building in Waterville. It's a sixplex. There's six units in it. And currently... It's all inhabited by squatters. The place was uh, 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 taken back by the bank. People saw that it was vacant. They moved in. You say, this doesn't happen. Actually, this is my story with our house that we are in currently. There were squatters there for a year. The house had been repossessed. They were living there for a year before we ever got there. (laughs) Good gig if you can get it. Rent free, all of that payment-free. So anyway, he says, all right, but here, so I'm going to deed you this. And the reason I'm doing this, this isn't for your jollies or whatever, but I want you to start some kind of a ministry using this sixplex. And so he thinks about it. And he's like, you know what we could do? All right, yeah. I, you know what? We're going to use it for single moms, unwed mothers, you know, who are struggling, struggling just to get on their feet and everything else. And, and I know it's only six, but it's a start, and we can do something with that. So that's what we're going to do. So God says, boy, that sounds like a plan. Good. As long as it's to my glory and my honor, and it's for my purposes, and, you know, all of that. Oh, great. Got it. So God gives them the deed, and now they've got to go evict the people. This was not a suggestion. This was a demand by the Holy One. And so they go, and the first three people, they were like, yeah, we knew it would come to an end sooner or later. Boom. No problem. Next two families, they were like, uh, I, you know, eh, you're going to have to get the sheriff if you want us out of here. Fine. Okay. Took care of those two. But the one remaining family just, it was like, they, they, they just wouldn't leave and they couldn't even get anybody to get them out of there. And so finally the guy said, you know what? We've got five. We've got five units. And honestly, they're not bad tenants as far as tenants go. I mean, it's not like they've been trashing the place or anything like that. So you know what? Forget it. I'm going to let them remain. And so pretty quickly, the place fills up with single moms in the other five vacant apartments. And so about three months into this later, the landlord, you, the owner, goes around and he's just kind of checking up on things and plus they have a mentoring program there or want to get started with a mentoring program once they get settled and all of that. And he's talking to a couple of ladies there and everything and they're starting to tell him some pretty disturbing things about the family that wasn't evicted. And it turns out they are members of a spiritualist cult and they are actively Conducting seances and, and fortune tellings and palmeries and everything else in their apartment. And they are actively proselytizing. That means trying to make these moms, these unsuspecting moms, converts to converts to their way of thinking of spirituality and, and all of this stuff. All of a sudden the owner goes, Oh boy, I never bargained on that. And sure enough, even lost a couple of them to the cult. When God says you will go in and you will dispossess all of the people from the land I am giving you, it's because I know what I am doing. And if you don't do it, I read it already, they will become thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. So we come up into the New Testament, you know, that part of the Bible that's Totally disconnected from the Old Testament and nothing like it. False. Here's what we read from the Apostle Paul Do not be bound together with unbelievers. This is Old Testament, New Testament. This is why the Canaanites had to go, the Amorites, the Mosquito bites, the, the Jerobites, the all of that. Had, all of them had to go. What partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, New Testament, therefore, in light of this, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The people of God in First Samuel and throughout the ages right up until today. Do not tend to move from places of unholiness and unrighteousness and wickedness and gravitate toward holiness and righteousness and goodness. It's the old adage that we have that one apple could spoil the whole barrel. If you put a good apple into a barrel of half-rotting and rotting apples, I guarantee you, you can keep going back and keep going back, you're not going to one day find five good apples all of a sudden. And then ten, and then fifty good apples. And it doesn't work that way, and it doesn't work that way with the human nature. That's why Paul said, don't you know that a little leaven, which is yeast... A little leaven, just a little bit of leaven, leavens this big lump of dough. Why? Because it keeps multiplying and replicating. Try and take a lump of dough that's already risen with yeast and unyeast it. <laughs> you can't do it. And in God's divine omniscience and an unending love, God declares to His people, do not become like those around you. Do not be. Enculturated. You say, well, but, you know, you're always saying, you know, you've got to let the whole Bible turn to the whole Bible. And Paul had more to say on this subject. Like what? Well, Paul said, I've become all things to all men. Hmm? 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 It's like, he, indeed he did. He was not instructing the church to stoop as low as the lowest around you, imitating and adopting their habits and their values, becoming like them. What he was saying is by all means stoop to the lowest around you so that you may raise them up to the heights of walking with Jesus. Because that's exactly what he says in the rest of this statement. I've become all things to all men that I might win all the more. It means entering their world to rescue them out of it. The case of God's people in 1 Samuel demanding an earthly king like all the other kings It was not an attempt to become all things to all men so that they could win the Canaanites over to Adonai. That wasn't going to happen. And it didn't happen. Their goal was to placate, to take the route of least resistance and hope for the best. And way more often than not, they became like them. God says, Samuel, give them what they want. And then they will cry out in that day because of their king whom they have chosen for themselves. And in that day, the Lord will not answer them. It is dumbfounding to me that the picture painted is one of being under an earthly king. There will be oppression, injustice, misery, and pain as they exist to enrich the king they demanded, effectively becoming his slave. And yet they still demand the king. So Samuel concludes saying, go, everyone, every man of you, meaning your whole household, go, go go to your own cities, get, I'm done. You will get what you want, as we shall see. Do you not hear the clamoring parallel here with our present state of national leadership, just to go to the highest level? People willing to, in very real ways, in a manner of speaking, sell their souls out to the politician that says, Sure, you put me in there, I'll give you a cell phone, I'll give you a TANF, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. This is what I'm gonna do for you, because I care for you and I love you. What do I gotta give you in return? Nothing! But your soul, your humanity, your dignity, your freedom of choice, and above all else, your vote to keep me in so that I can keep gathering horses to myself and wives to myself and silver and gold to myself and all that. It's just a difference in epic. You might say, well, boy, but we don't have a choice in our system of governance. To choose our... Well, no, you know we do. But it is, in fact, it it is different because we are not, nor have we ever been, under a theocracy. And so we are expected by the principles of the inspired, infallible, near, and authoritative word of God from beginning to end to apply those principles to our lives. And so in very real ways, what God says of the king should be applied for everyone who is running for anything at any level of authority and leadership where they will be over you and me. And so think about God's merciful instruction about the quality in the heart and the motives of the leaders that we should choose. I'm going to ask Paul Halley to come on up Close our time in prayer. Let's pray. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, you are a merciful God. And throughout the pages of the scriptures that you've given us, Lord, you just repeat and repeat how much you love us, and you instruct us, and you guide us. And Lord, I know even in my own life, Lord, I have turned my back on you and resisted you, Lord, and for my my uh, peril.